we're realizing that being lonely is has huge economic impacts and huge um, societal like issues that break down our ability to, to just be happy. We don't need to be lonely. There's so many humans on this planet. Um, if we can just be more human and connect and understand our difference, then I think it's a pretty cool future. Matt Levinson, and my guest today is an absolute force of nature, one of those people who electrifies a room as soon as she walks through the door. It's a good thing, this place where we're meeting and and doing this conversation today, 107 Projects, barely even has doors. It's a huge, welcoming, basically a living room for the neighbourhood and and a stage for the community as well, one they've taken to heart. You know, when you talk to people in Redfern, they say – you know, this place is theirs. They really um, have taken a sense of ownership of it. Jess Cook has built on that role um, and her involvement to take a broader leadership role in creative arts, including expanding the 107 Projects franchise out to um, a great centre in um, Green Square. And, you know, if you take it back years and years, Jess has been involved in countless shows, performances, projects, festivals, you name it, she's had a part in it. I first met Jess when she got behind a campaign that I was involved in years ago. But although at the time I was really blown away by her creative entrepreneurial spirit and energy, I've never really had the chance to sit down and chat anything more than just, you know, hellos and that kind of thing at uh, crowded events. That's what this podcast is all about. It's about talking to great people, you know, people that you really admire, people whose work you have looked at over the years and thought, um, it was it was really impressive in in special ways, but you never really got a chance to dig into what makes them tick, and that's what this is all about. Hey Jess, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you, Matt. That's very um, flattering what you said. I really yeah, thank you. That's beautiful. Thanks for having me. You've got this mischievous spark that you know I think is pretty undeniable. Anyone who knows you would have seen that. Coupled with this enormous drive that has, you know, seen you deliver, you know, things like this in this entire facility that we're in, which is extraordinary. Where did that come from? You know, was that something that you had as a kid? Was it something that, you know, you look to your parents, your grandparents, you see the the seeds of that? I definitely think that as a very young kid, my grandfather was a giant influence. Um, he was a rostrum um uh, debater and he would take me along as a very very young kid um, into the city where I would hear these incredible stories of holocaust survivors and people were just you know debating you know even really I guess mind-boggling but very human focused um, ideas and I just got wrapped up in it and I think that carving out space for people to express themselves and communicate and connect with other people is really at the essence of my drive and that's my grandfather's very uh, instrumental in in helping me build my philosophical framework or my arch- like my architecture and and but keeping it fun and and never taking yourself too seriously is also at the core of it. Tell me about the fun and the not taking yourself too seriously. There, I really looked forward to the personalities. To be honest, the Holocaust survivor, I think her name was Camille, Camilia. 
um, and she was actually the secretary of the the city, the the one in the, the club in the city, and she just had the most amazing outfits, and her hair was always set, and she'd open up the box to you know collect the money because dinner was a part of it, and then you're just unpacking all these like layers and layers and layers of history, and the building that it was in in the city was built, you know, it's a sandstone, crazy, gothic-y kind of looking building. So as a young kid, that was the fun. Like I didn't want to go to like a time zone or like for me the fun was going into these crazy buildings and meeting these crazy people who had these incredible stories and actually feeling validated, listened to. So they never questioned that I – I think I was nine the first time I went or 11, but they never questioned my – contribution it was always a conversation of unpacking even difficult ideas but I think that's kind of fun and I, I think for me my one of my favorite um uh creative thinkers is Dario Fo and he talks about learning through laughter and some of the hardest and most confronting things can be really really tough but if you throw a bit of satire a bit of humor like that's what breaks down barriers and that's how you kind of learn without even realizing that you're learning we're going to be talking about a few different buildings in this conversation, yes. you know, that you've been involved in. And it's kind of interesting. I was I was thinking, you know, I'm really interested in the city and the, the built form and architecture and so on. We were even chatting about that as we walked into this room. And it's it's really interesting to me that right from that early stage, the building was like part of the, so much a part of the experience for you. Very much so. I see them as people, as living objects and well they, they stay alive if people are in them looking after them and giving them the kind of dare I say the metaphysical kind of juice that keeps a building a kind of alive and cared for but yeah really for me the built environment is is um I'm very attuned to it I'm a visual thinker um but I definitely read buildings and I think that in the the way that my career progressed and actually understanding more about functionality or the um, compliance around buildings rather than just the aesthetics that's where I got even it got even more interesting because it's how do you make a place that is safe and inclusive for people but also how do you make it like it's the invisible magic that makes buildings like that's that gives it life I guess and learning from a building I think is really important rather than telling a building what to do so I think that's because again they're like I have a conversation with a building as dicky as that sounds Totally. You know, they, they, they're complicated and yeah. this one specifically is very complicated. Before we get into that though, I, I want to ask you about growing up again. You know, you grew up on the North North sure. Shore, um, a really interesting suburb, you know, around that sort of area around Castle Crag, um, which, you know, I just, the more I find out about it, the more intrigued I am about that place. You know, um, the Griffins, um, you know, um, Marion and Walter Burley Griffin were so crucially involved in designing it and, and it was their vision for it. And there's so much kind of bound up in that with the way that Mar- Marion has been left out of some of the stories about her work with Frank Lloyd Wright and in Canberra and so on. Were you aware of any of that stuff as a kid? Did it leave any imprint on, you know, like you must have been riding bikes around the neighbourhood or doing that kind of thing? What was it like? I got obsessed with it. Um, the fact that we had an amphitheatre, like, that was built in the 1920s in my suburb. No offence to anyone that lives on the North Shore, but it is not the most creative space. But, co- like, Castle Crag, that was built by crazy utopians, you know, young, bright young things who had this idea of this, you know, creating a creative society on, the, on, on, on a crag, literally. Like, there's one road in, one road out. 
Um, and yet they, I, yeah, and the, and yet the buildings are like sandstone, like really thick, heavy. Ventilation isn't very good. They're very dark. It's a very interesting part of history. But I was obsessed with it, and the fact that, like, you know, I lived on the Poston, for example. You know, like they they, they weren't even the way they named the streets were just beautifully absurd and unfortunately their dream kind of popped with the great depression um and they had to kind of um sell off that kind of dream i guess but the the you can definitely it's not a normal suburb it's got some really interesting um shapes to it really unexpected it's it's a it's a very unique part of sydney that i think people should go and explore things really kicked in in terms of your kind of creativity when you went off to university to Macquarie Uni. I know you were involved in um, the beatification of Nurt Buden, that that show that seems like there was just a cast of people who've gone on to massive things right across performance and arts. You really do your research, yes. That's a big, that was a big turning point, the beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Viagra Robbery. Um, I love that you reel off the title in full like that because it it steps it up and it kind of gives you a sense of what the show was about, right? <laughs> and it, look, it started as a, um, a a series of skits that was then put together for our um, uni, you know, annual comedy show. And then between Heath and um, Chris, they uh, well, a whole bunch of us. It was like shivers. I think. Shiver my timbers, I think we have a really good thing here. And it just kind of evolved. And then when we pitched it to Melbourne Comedy Festival, you know, that's kind of where it, it took off. And we were at the Athenaeum Theatre and we had sold-out shows pretty much. I got to meet Bert Newton. It was it was a very hilarious, satirical, crazy show. And, yes, most of the cast have gone on to do I'm probably the least theatre involved or, like, TV or performance involved than, than the rest of the cast. But it, it changed. It blew my it changed my world and it actually led me to 107, So, um, which is a slightly different story. But, yeah, uni was... Um, Were you part of the Campus Drama Club? Is that yes, what drama. it came out of? Yeah. 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 Now I'm having flashbacks to screen printing our Drama Act T-shirts and because it was like the early 2000s, we were like cutting them off on the shoulder and we used to meet in the art room and this club that we came up called Pansies, which is where one of the founding members of um, 107, I met Jamie Gerlach, and we would bring our jeans in and we would hand paint them and they were so cool. Um, but it really was, it was, it was, I was still, you know, I was, I was still involved with City Uni and Suds and people think that I went to City Uni, but Macquarie Uni was just this other wonderful, um, unexpected cast of new characters. It, it, like, to go to Macquarie Uni, and I did it because my course was specifically only offered there, but... But the, the, it was a whole mixture of people. You weren't, you weren't kind of mixing with the high school crowd that had suddenly found themselves at different unis in the city. It was very much more, um, I don't know, hands-on and less, just less, uh, like let's just do great things and have fun. Like it didn't have a sense of, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, a sense of you weren't comparing yourself to somebody else. Like it, you kind of got, you shared a lot of that high school stuff. You yeah. Know? And yeah. Look, I had Dan Illich on the on this podcast oh, last yeah, year. Dan, yeah. And you know, we talked a bit about it and it just felt like for him and all the stuff and incredible things that he's done that he's got his own totally unique thing that he does. It seems like so much of that was kind of crystallized in that little scene there. What was special about it? I think that we were left to our own devices. I think that there was experimentation 
I also think it was like Josh Green who was head of who who was running Dramac, and now I think he's at the Opera House. Yes, I think he's producing the Opera House. But he, as a leader, was very much like, "Here's the space, do what you want to do," you know. And there was that at Suds, but there was very much more. I don't know. We were more raggy dolls at Macquarie Uni. It was more like we were there because of our talent and our interest, not because of our existing connections. If that makes sense, even though it's we're in our early twenties, I think it was. The creative arts degree that I was a part of, it really was people who were multi-arts. They didn't want to be staying in one lane. So, yes, they might have been focusing on music, but they were learning the management side of things. They were learning, which is really the entrepreneurial thing. So it's like learning how to make your own way. And I think that, again, is they left us to our own devices. It wasn't like we were corralled through um, how to evolve ourselves into something, even as a commercial product as the beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Bicycle Robbery. So... I think that it's the entrepreneurial spirit because yeah. we weren't chasing anything to compare ourselves to. Does and maybe not sense? expecting other people to set it up for you as exactly. well. The yep. institution or the organisation around. And I, I reckon that's something that goes for what Dan does as much as what you do. You go out and make your own thing happen. Yeah, pretty much. In that time after you were doing a stack of things, you were tutoring kids in drama doing performance poetry and spoken word and putting on festivals. Um, you were invo- involved in um, Creative Sydney. You were sort of, you know, seemed to be firing off on all cylinders. Was that part of that same thing? You just got a lot of creative energy to burn or were you looking for something? Were you reaching out? Like, what is my creative voice? What is what is, what is is my career going to be in, in creativity? What was it? Were you... I, I never thought about, like, what is my career? And I never thought about that. I always... My, I guess my main carrot on the end of the stick was, oh, my God, there's some talented people in Sydney. Oh, my God. Why isn't there space for these people? Oh, my God. Can we just make some space for all these people so they can engage with audiences that deserve to enjoy this talent? Um, so in a weird way, the drive was carving out space for creativity because not because it's creativity but because people deserve to enjoy have wonderful experiences and connect and enjoy themselves and it took me a very long time to realize that the art side of it or the niche you know the the creative bubble that for me was like a tiny little meniscus the main chunk of it was about bringing people together in a social way and just again using creativity to 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 bring them together so I think that was my driving force of um and seeing what can happen when you provide or not provide carve out a space that belongs to whoever wants to respectively fill it, that's when real magic happens. And you can't force that. You can't You can't um, formalise that. Otherwise it becomes like a corporate overthought thing. So I think it's the spontaneity of the creative community in Sydney is what's fueled me, really. Yeah. Look, I reckon it was about that time that I started to become aware of your work. I was doing um, the the Art Ideas show on FBI Canvas at the time. Yes. And I, I started working for the mayor about that time as well and you were jumping between the world of culture and advocating for change to around that time. I remember reading a piece in the Herald um, where you were, you know, really sort of calling out the need for space for artists in the city, artist-run spaces, the issues around regulation and development. You've sort of alluded to them earlier. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's enough to do the kind of creative work to be, you know, putting on projects, to be staging shows, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that doesn't seem to have been enough for you. Like, what was it? You were, you know, you were saying this before, you know, you want space for creativity. But 
what was it? Not everyone sees their job as getting out there and actually pushing for the social change. What made you do that? Again, I, I, I didn't realise until only like four years ago that it was about social change. I like <clears throat> I said to, like, I don't think I'm that strategic, but then I'm, I am very good at strategy. But a lot of what I do is quite um, intuitive and responsive in an immediate, in a responsive demand. And I think the advocacy or creating space for not just now but the future. Oh my god, this sounds so dicky. But it's it's the fact that you're thinking about the next. So even beyond, you know, um, even if I choose to not work in the creative industries at some point or, I, you know, I just start, you know, whatever whatever happens, I decide to go and, I don't know, be a farmer or something, which would be great, um, that at least what I've done is set up for a dot, dot, dot rather than a full stop. And I just, I think it's about, I really don't like waste. So don't just do a project and then tick the box and it's all done. Like how can something lead to something else? What is that circular nature of supporting each other and not wasting things? So the drive, I guess, um, the advocacy, yeah, it's interesting because I still feel like I have to, like, I still feel like not a lot has changed. I still feel like I'm fighting the same fight in a weird way, you know, like, wow, we've got a new Sydney modern that's worth 500 million plus or whatever the full, I don't want to know what the full amount is. Um, great, that doesn't really solve the lack of independent cultural space in Sydney. Like, we're still losing space at a ridiculous, more than we're gaining it. And I still get um, a lot of emails or phone calls from individuals going, uh, my, the, the, the Inner West Council are going to close down, which is around the corner. They're going to close down the space until, but do you, have, do you have a private certifier? And I'm like, okay, yep, how do we navigate? Because they've got the great intention of creating a space, but they're not aware of all of the garbage that, that is around compliance. And so you can't just have creativity in a building and shove it in. It has to be integrated into the overall financial model, the operational model, and, and ultimately that it's that it's fit for purpose. Like, unless you have that, you can't do any of the creative stuff. So I think that's probably the drive is like, you know, the raise the bar, for example. It's like getting rid of the Pope license was a massive thing. Like, why do you need to be a giant hotelier to be able to perform poetry in on a stage do you know what I mean like so it was kind of my motivation was like well if these are the barriers that are in the way of our city being as cool as I know it is underneath the surface then let's get rid of those and make it more above ground so that people can engage with it you were living in Hibernian house around that time what was it like at the time amazing we kind of call it the I kind of call it the, for me it was one of the golden years because and actually I should share, there's a, a fantastic um, book that Dr. Alessandra has put together which is looking at Hibernian House and its um, uh, neighbour across the road on Randall Street and kind of what has come out of that space. And the key thing that she talks about is the loophole. And by loophole, again, it's about self-direction, self-governance. Like you find a way to make something work because you know the outcomes are going to be worth it, both for the creatives involved but also for the audiences involved so there was also that time for me anyway between 1999 and 2011 when I moved out where we were all collectively looking after each other there was re this real sense of you could go anywhere in the building at any time and you would run into someone who had a problem a creative problem that you could help solve um it it, it was a giant resource and 
people really respected it. There was a sense of like a duty of care, which is the complete opposite to anarchy, you know. Like it it was people were on their own self-directed mission, but they were collectively responsible. And you can't you can't create an EOI for that. I'm sorry. It has to organically kind of come about. Yeah, it's pretty special, isn't it, when it, when it does. I remember, you know, around that time I went to a bunch of parties at um, – at Hibernian House yeah. through that period. But when I was on my radio show at the at the time, which was all about kind of creative, creative projects and what have you, yeah. some large percentage of the people who were coming through with, you know, um, projects that were had taken shape and had sort of developed into like a real creative voice, they were all people who'd come out of Land Franchise, which was kind of, I guess, the previous generation of that kind of space. Um and the wedding circle and space three and yeah, hundred percent. You know these these yeah. these beautiful spaces. And I guess we are now in this situation where you know rental affordability, property affordability in our city is just unbelievably challenging right mm. across the city. You can't even find a place to live. Um, what can you? What do you take from those experiences? I'm going to use an example, a current with our new venue that's um, that hasn't even officially. F- big launched um, at 107 in South Everly, which is um, a part of the South Everly Innovation Precinct. It's the first time we're actually considering paying a town planner to do our DA because we've always done it ourselves because um, I even think back to 107 Redfern Street, I got mates rates and it was going to be five grand and and we literally had nothing. So I, not just myself, but other founding members, we put our heads together and really focused on, well, how do we navigate this planning system? How It can't be that hard. I mean, it was weird <laughs> to learn more about the building code than kind of creative practice for quite a while. But um, but it's that DIY, like we will we will do it ourselves to make something possible. But now, the, now we're kind of weighing it up going, do we pay somebody to do it because they already know it, it's a complicated site, it's, it's a weighing up thing again. It's like you can do it yourself, but is it always the best to do it yourself? Or how do you then collaborate with um, – how do you collaborate with people? But it's it, it made me also think if, if we are just paying somebody to do it, does that take away – because for me it's the proximity of developing a space that gives it its beauty. Like you're not just walking into cut the ribbon and here's your fancy new place. Like you're actually – you know why that – you know, why – something isn't working because oh well that was put in the wrong well you know like you again you learn through the building and so for me is it a missed opportunity not just the financial but to go through the process of doing the DA in this giant precinct which is going to be complicated so that I learn and understand how that precinct works because it's the learning it's not just the saving money it's the the learning and then that gives us even more autonomy because without creative autonomy you're just a bit boring. And I guess you must have had that experience with the beautiful facility at Green Square that Peter Stutchbury designed. It's, you know, you know, an iconic kind of visual celebration. Um, but you must have had that experience of, you know, going into something that has been effectively pre-made, you know, for you. You haven't been involved in the development. Um, I'd kind of be keen to dive into that, but I want to get back to the stuff mm. about writing your own DA. Tell me when you first got the inkling that, you could have access to this site and how you came to be writing your own DA, which I think most people who've had any experience with uh, kind of planning approval system would kind of just freak out at that idea. Oh, that's a 
now I've got to come up with the short the shorter version of what's a long story. Um, I think we were very lucky in that we identified this building. Um, Peter Holmes, the court, still owned it, or he just sold it to the city of Sydney. It was already a class nine B building. It already um, it already had a lot of it was because it was a sheltered workshop, so it already had more ambulant toilets than most buildings would have. It's all level. It already had the lift shaft. Um, it was very empty and robust. Concrete floors, big concrete slab. Um, we knew how we could play with the space. And you've got to remember that 107 Redfern Street, that was also just an empty shell. I mean, sorry, 107 in Surrey Hills, the first space, that was also just an empty shell. So amongst our founding members, we're that's all we know is to take something that somebody else doesn't want and then to turn it, know the bare bones of it um, and then turn it into something that can work for the communities that you want to serve. Had had learnt the hard way when, when Surrey Hills was closed, well, when it was shut down for being non-compliant and that, again, that blew my brain. I was just like, you got to do what? Wow. And that was really fascinating. Like what are these invisible regulations that... that, that um, cover certain parts of the city and you know if you step to the building next door it's a completely different kettle of fish so I mean, again in a hibernian we were kind of allowed to just do stuff and even my the other warehouses that i've developed after that but um i just loved learning how these rules governed how buildings can be used and how people can engage with it and i, I really i really enjoyed it um but it, the main reason was because we couldn't afford to get anyone else to do it and even the liquor license i remember when we were applying for the liquor license and we paid someone five thousand dollars and they just didn't even look into you know we had charity status by then like we're a fully legal entity um with t1 charity status and and they just slapped like a boring generic thing on us and then when i came back from we were doing some public art overseas and i came back and i was just like oh well i'm gonna look into this so, and I know that sounds kind of arrogant, but it was more of like, well, what do they know? So, like, if it's all, it's somewhere, it's written somewhere, you can read the governance of what makes those laws or that process possible. If we can get our head around that, then they can't stop us, you know. So, um, it was more of a, we didn't have the money, but then also an interest of how do we, next time, you know, I've, we've, <coughs> I've written like 60 A's, I think now. And then we got our catering mobile liquor license because at Green Square, the nature of the security cameras and the amount, the sight lines are so terrible that to get an on-premise license would be ridiculous. And we don't use it all the time as well, which is also what they found quite weird. But um, that's when I went, well, we'll get a mobile one. And so then I started looking into that and then I'm like, again, mind blown. And it's very hard to get. Um, it, it, it's not an easy process, but we couldn't afford to pay someone $10,000 to do it. So we had to do it ourselves. And I didn't do it all by myself, but it was definitely, I get a kick out of learning bureaucratic cobwebs and how to get them out of the way. You know, there were a lot of people probably about the same time, like Marcus Westbury, who was kind of dealing with a lot of this stuff in Newcastle and kicked off the whole Renew Newcastle thing, which yep. felt like it was going to be something that stormed around the world at the at that moment. Ianto Ware, yep. you know, in Adelaide, doing the same thing in Adelaide. You know, in, in different ways, they both went into really administrative kind of policy leadership kind of, you know, positions. And that must have been an option for you, like to to take off 
you know, in that kind of much more governmental kind of path. I mean, I know Marcus has gone back into, you know, running precincts and that kind of thing. Yeah. What kept you, what kept you in the creative space? Probably I'm crazy. Probably that's the, like, I'm also loyal. So, you know, 107 gave me my education and I've been at the helm of 107 now for 10 12 years um i love what we stand for in our philosophy i don't need to go some like that's what feel like that's what feeds me my superannuation might like to be a bit fat up but you know we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> we'll get to that i've been tempted sometimes but um i love the playground that is 107 i love the autonomy that we have i love the creative freedom i love the community side of it. I love the rawness of it. I, I get very easily bored in um, plas- like in programmed places or I like improvising and and I like being able to be nimble and move quickly and I think that there aren't many other places in Sydney that would give you that kind of creative freedom. You know, way before 107 started, you were quoted, I think, in a story in the Herald saying something Saying words to the effect, you know, young people are quite project-based. A lot of, you know, artists switch from being an arts administrator to director to art maker to commercial photographer and that cross-pollination of culture and ideas. You know, you're talking about that thing which I guess people were talking about as slashies at that time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like I I remember Jess Scully put me on a panel you know, talking about slashies around that same time and I got really cold on the idea – but, you know, in a way that's become just part of – that's like a foundational part of how people work now. People are not like one career, one, you know, employer, whatever. People are moving between them. How do you feel in retrospect about that? The slashy – look, I think it was a it was a like a trendy word at the time. I think it just means entrepreneurial, really. Um, and for people that can't sit still, you know, like I've – I guess the reason why theatre – was where I really um, stretched my legs is that, and I say this all the time, but theatre is the art form that is automatically kind of encompassing of multi-arts. Like you are working with musicians, you're working with set builders, you're working um, with writers, you're working with performers It's a, and costume designers. Like it, in, in creating that creative world and then to get your audiences in there, you know, if you don't go through the usual um, trajectory of career – Again, you got to make it your own. So then, oh, now I'm suddenly a promoter, and now I'm, a, <laughs> you know. So it's the you, you can't you can't unwind or disconnect the the, the the not even business, but just the day-to-day keeping something moving and alive. You've got to kind of be committed to that, and I and I don't think you can do that unless you've got that entrepreneurial slashy I'm so glad people don't use it anymore but this it is it's the it's the who do I need to be for at right now to help this project work and it still it still happens at 107 like my I'm not a typical CEO I am yeah I'm working on a public art commission because that's and working with the artists because it's but I still clean the bin area and I still (laughs) you know and I still help out with catering and and I think um, – and decor. Like, for me, it's like keeping your imaginative muscles alive. And I'm not, adver- like, adverse to administration. I, I love all the you – know, I was dissing with the reporting stuff before, but it comes hand in hand. Um, 
yeah, I think it's just I don't want to sit still. I want to I want to be stimulated. You must have seen countless creative projects come through this place. I mean, we've just walked through a milk crate theater are setting up. What when you think back and you think about the pivotal, you know, the shows that you think really encapsulate what makes this place special? Are there are there shows that you immediately go to? Is there a, maybe even a show that you immediately go to that kind of just yeah, or I, a moment. No, you know? I reckon one of them would be Mark Bolton's. Um, oh now I've forgotten the name of the actual show, but it's where he created these um, interactive head. Pe- oh, the Illumin. Oh, I'll have to give you after this what the actual name of the show is. But he created these like hovering heads that were project. So sorry, an audience member from the community in Redfern would come in. They'd sit down. He'd do a bit of an interview. He'd record your face and what you were saying, and then your face was projected onto one of these giant heads and then you would go up and as an audience member you could press local people's like a button and actually play them like they're an organ and you just heard these stories of people in in Redfern and it looked like something out of this world and yet it was so user-friendly and all this hidden back technology you wouldn't even you know and it was all ages and just about bringing people together and sharing stories um, Did you see people from the neighbourhood coming in? Yeah, and they loved it. And yep. the diversity of people because it was – it just had that aesthetic that was um, interesting but not kitty and not too, like, arty cool and not – it just hit the spot. And that that's – for me, it's about bringing people together and sharing stories. Another one would be um, Nicole Monks' work at Sculpture by the Sea where we set a 20-metre – diameter sculpture in the shape of um, a whale shark rock drawing and we set it on fire and basically it was just a giant bonfire. So we had about 2,500 people down on the beach uh, listening to these incredible stories from Mob but then also sitting and just watching the fire burn. It's like at the most basic level that is such a place for communication, right, in front of a fire. Everyone kind of knows what that's like. Exactly. Um, I've just remembered it was the Lumophonic Creature Choir. That's Mark Volaton's work. And, again, it was these random people coming together to create a choir. So I guess that, for me, as an overall theme is, like, the mosaic nature of of collaboratively, yeah, working with audience in this, like, almost seamless, invisible way. They don't even know the magic. Again, they're just learning through laughter coming up to Dario It's that thing of, like... They're having a great time. But at the root of, like, Nicole's work was really intense, um, uh, you know, dysphoria. Like, now the whale sharks are no longer on the east coast of Australia. They're on the mob being, you know, unseated. Like, there was a lot going on. But the main thing was about healing and coming together and learning. But you don't realise that you're just having a great time. That's been one of my favourite. another one of my favourites. I actually even think, coming back to 107's first project that we did as as 107 was at carriage works and it was for tedx and it was 2010 or 11 anyway and um we built this thing called the ideas wall and it was this really like blobby curved um sculptural wall that we went 360 and we printed really simple but we printed these uh brick shaped postcards and people just wrote their ideas on it and that is so simple but we were dressed as these funny and again it's the it's the humor rather than the academic, and there's a lot behind it. But, you know, we're like, let's build this wall of ideas. It's not going to build itself, folks, you know. And um, and people are buzzing with ideas because they're coming out of all these talks and they're in the foyer. And, again, it was seeing the individual parts create a whole and then people engaging with the messages and with the ideas. And it's actually more the the, 
the conversations that you have between capturing the artwork or between key parts, there that's where the magic is for me. That's where you, yeah, connect with people. You know, those three projects you've talked about, you know, they're all kind of moments where people have connected, been sort of, you know, shared stories, collaborated in a way that didn't, you know, the, what I hear from you is in a way that wasn't like, didn't feel like people were being told to connect and collaborate. It was just enjoyable and so easy to do that. And, you know, when I walk, one of my sort of, you know, my feeling about this place when you walk through Redfern, right from the start was that it really opened up the whole street. You know, the door kind of, the way that you've got the doors designed, I don't know if this is, you know, a legacy of how it was before, but they're sort of slanting and the windows are huge and open. It's a really inviting space that, you know, creates that kind of space for connection and I guess creativity long long term. In a way, like post-COVID, that's what a lot of people, you know, a lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders, a lot of people who run organisations of whatever kind are trying to do. They're trying to create places that are inviting, where people want to spend time, where people want to collaborate. In a way, you've kind of become a an, the expert at that, right, with the kind of projects that you've done. What have you learned about that? Designing places? Yeah, for for that kind of thing. So it, to create it really comes of. down to really practical things. So we're very lucky. Caroline Pidcock, who um, used to have her firm around the corner um, and a, a really – lovely human being she donated her time to help do the drawings and the city of sydney um very lucky that they um supported um installing the new frontage because it was this big giant it used to be this giant woven metal gate which was beautiful and we wanted to try and repurpose it but again we were looking at it from a really practical perspective what is going to open up the place so it's more visible because we're no longer hiding anymore where we, we're legal entity we're right on redfern street we're going to drop a culture bomb and everyone's invited and so the height of the ceilings were one of the most appealing things and so when we were looking at a door it was like what is the most practical door and so we went down um the like fire station doors etc so like what is going to give us the most amount of height so a truck can still drive in what is also going to be the most affordable material that's lightweight so the aluminium frame and um and i remember actually when all of this was going on and we were building the front area the um the team that the city had engaged to construct the disability ramp had decided to put it right in the middle of the driveway which would have ruined all of the plans they that's where they thought it was the best in terms of building code and we were like, no, 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 no. Because it would have cut the whole thing in half and we would have lost our truck access. And so we negotiated and they were able to still get it all approved. We just moved it to the edge, which made perfect sense from dual egress, blah, blah, blah. So it really comes down to a lot of practical rather than aesthetic. So for me, function leads to form, not the other way around. Yeah, that's fantastic. We've, you know, we we talked a bit about the regulatory kind of hurdles that you've amazingly navigated yourself earlier. Over the last, say, five or so years, we've had this, what feels like an extraordinary amount of regulatory reform and policy reform in that Mm. space. The Pope laws have gone and, you know, a stack of other... Even our fresco dining is a big... It's incredible, right? Like, you know, we live in this beautiful outdoors city and yet we're all cloistered away before and COVID, you know, COVID really kicked that off. Mm, But, you know, right at the start you were saying you still 
feel like you're still fighting against some of the same old fights. What what's left? What are the what are the key hurdles that are left? You know, in some um, that's probably a really long list and probably a you know probably like <laughs> get out some butcher paper and start scribbling it out. But like you know, thinking broadly, like you know, some of those that work that's been led by John Wardle and Kerry Glasscock and you know yourself and a stack of people, you know, Clover and Jess Scully yeah, and yeah. Miller and yeah. lo- countless people, right, have been involved in that battle. Um, and the reform has been huge. But still, we're a pretty unaffordable city where um, spaces for creative creativity are really challenging. What What is the next of those? I do think the recent change in government, and it's not about which government I sway towards, it's more I think also just a change because the last 12 years... Um, the last 12 years we've seen lots of investment in cultural infrastructure, but it's all the same. It's all the same, you know. It's, And I'm not saying that a lot of those institutions don't deserve it. Like, Art Gallery New South Wales, they've just got the Sydney Modern, as I was saying before. You've got the powerhouse and, and it's great. Like the Inner West, not Inner West, sorry, West Invest, um, you know, reinvesting in Campbelltown Arts Centre. And it's all great, but we still don't have an a really big independent grassroots space. Like we don't have, you know, like your Holzmarkt in Berlin, which is also my favourite thing that I always talk about, or even NDSM, which is linked to to um, Amsterdam's North Amsterdam's council. But the spaces still seem to be like Sydney wants a corporate space. Like that's what gets or hyper polished space. Like that seems to always be the the easy, we'll, we'll put all, we'll put five hundred dollars, five hundred million dollars into that, or we'll put um, even art space getting redeveloped. And I'm not saying they don't deserve to be redeveloped. It's got nothing about who gets what piece of the pie. It's I about prioritisation of the money, it, right? Exactly. And I think it's like um, it would be so wonderful to see Sydney take that giant leap. And another thing that I've been going on for ages, but like White Bay. Imagine if White Bay had your Google as the anchor tenant. Um, that covered the majority of the cost, but it was run by an independent entity like 107 or even Brand X or whatever, but an independent that's still working with all the different stakeholders and can be the conduit between government, corporate and and philanthropic. But it'd just be so fun to see something that that wasn't bound by bureaucracy and it's still sitting there. Like, I mean, now they're, you know, they are finally fixing it, starting to fix it up so that it's at least fit for occupation of some description but like we don't need another barangaroo you know like we've got a barangaroo um yeah there's that space that is a bit wild and a bit woolly and you know if you could get it just up to spec so that people could work in there you know it would be a massive destination yeah and one that is i think cultural and socially focused rather than artistic or business because i think and i love art and i love business but there's something about the even thinking like Addison Road is a really kind of lo-fi but amazing version of it. It's that it's it's the low road buildings, you know. It's like they're not you don't have to polish all the floors in order for people to be able to walk and enjoy it, you know. Or like we don't need to create a, t- a version of the Tate Modern in in Sydney. Like why go to the Tate Modern? With that, you know, saying change of government, you know, federally we've got the federal government saying. Um, you know they're going to be targeting music towards more uh, targeting money towards more contemporary more sort of less of the establishment arts music contemporary music um the state government has just come in 
with a sort of a somewhat similar agenda. Mm-hmm. John Graham making some really good comments along that line. Are you optimistic? Yes, but I'm also not reliant on them to do it. Um, you know, in the same way as the city of Sydney can't do everything, the state government can't. Like, we need to have holistic collaborative approaches to make change. But I do feel, I really feel like they've got a commitment to a bigger 360 picture rather than just the top end. And I think they're really down to earth. Not to say that, I won't talk about particular politicians, but it it resonates with me. It kind of felt a little bit like um, uh, Kevin 07. And I was at a really cool, I was at Bronte at this house in an immersive theatre which didn't have approval to run the theatre. Anyway, um, at this theatre show and then the TVs that were a part of us were walking through the hallway. So I think it was the strings attached, guys. Anyway, turned to announce the election results and everyone just went, what? Like our faces fell off because my I've only – I'd only ever known a Howard government, really. This is in 2007. Yeah, Kevin 07. Yeah, yeah. I was at the um, – the, uh, I can't quite remember what the pub is over on um, – South Dowling Street at the 2SER party. Oh, great. And there was this kind of pivotal moment where it, it shifted as well there. It's the yeah. shift. It's the shift. I think it's not about which political party. It's this, oh, my God, there's going to be something different. Yeah. And I did feel, I really did feel like that. Again, I've really only ever known in my, you know, t- last 10 years or whatever of my career, I've only ever known a Liberal government. So I think that's interesting to see what it will do on a federal level. And, again, thank gosh... Thank God he got into me that um, the independents kept getting it with the city of Sydney because that was also like if we lost – because for me it's all about independence, right? And if we could have an independent prime minister, I would vote for them, do you know? But we just – we have it we, – our system doesn't allow us to do that. But, you know, it's – I feel like there's a good space um, now in Sydney, especially the area that we work in, you know, Jenny Leong, Tanya Plibersek, Clover Moore, like they are three amazing human beings who get – grassroots culture and understand why it's important but also understand the the big end of town and and i think yeah i'm feeling really positive thank you so much for your time today jess (laughs) that is such a great tone to finish on um but before i let you go i've got three really quick questions Uh what's keeping you up at night well lately i haven't been kept up late at night because i've been quite unwell so i've been going to sleep quite quickly um what's keeping me up at night i think as 107 grows, I want to make sure it's done in a sustainable way and I don't want to put pressure and the problem with a, a lot of DIY is that you can easily burn out. So I want to make sure that we're in a good position. Um, yeah, but feeling positive about the future. Who else should I talk to? I think you should talk to Jim Anderson. I have a feeling he would be a really good person. I also I think Tyson Coe would be great to talk to. Um, Tell me why, on both counts. On both counts. And I, James Littis would be amazing, actually. So um, Jim Anderson uh, was one of the founding members of Oz Magazine. His life, he's still uh, he's in his 80s, he's a practising artist. He's done some incredible things around the world and he is just such a down-to-earth, amazing creative. Um, Tyson Coe, I've known since I was like 13, I took him to my year 12 formal. Um, He has skated across so many different creative parts. You know, he's put on a lot of really cool events and obviously Keep Sydney Open is um, an incredible campaign that brought so many people together. But he's also just really funny. 
Yeah, I lo- and I love I love his show, and I, you know, um, on FBI, I used yeah. to listen to it and think, oh god, this is this is the show I should be doing. Um, but no, he plays. Canvas was very good. Come on, <laughs> um, look, he's he's fantastic. So that's a really great suggestion. And James Littis. So James Littis is a town planner who specialises in um, licensing, especially around entertainment venues. And he's kind of been a mentor of mine, and he was a 107 board member. But he also wrote his PhD in um, in music venues. So he and he loves punk and heavy metal, and he really has his finger on the pulse in terms of the built environment and creativity. I would love to speak to him. Uh, all that sounds excellent. <laughs> Last question: Uh-oh. What gives you hope? That's a tricky one, Matt. Um, that people that people do want to connect with each other, and I think this might sound a bit like a flipping way of saying it, but it took so long for One Hundred Seven to realize that like, what we really do is bring people together, and it's about social inclusion. We the creativity stuff's just the the glue or the bridge. So for me, I think hope that we're realizing that being lonely is has huge economic impacts and huge um, societal like issues that break down our ability to, to just be happy. We don't need to be lonely. There's so many humans on this planet. Um, if we can just be more human and connect and understand our difference, then I think it's a pretty cool future. I love that. What an amazing, <laughs> what an amazing job that you have. Uh, yes. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's been totally excellent and, um, you know, probably should have done it a long time ago. Um, Where's the best place for people to see your work, Jess? Uh, You could come down to 107 Redfern Street, Redfern, or 3A Joyton Avenue, Green Square, or our new space, which is um, at 2 Davy Road in South Everly, 107 South Everly, which is a new space with a social enterprise focus, which is really, really cool. It's amazing. Just walking through the door is the thing to do. Yeah. I highly recommend that you do it. It's... um, I don't know, a bubble of energy in this place, but you sort of, you you know, it's kind of the reverse of that um, Hobbit kind of situation where you step out the door, here it's stepping in the yeah. door and you never know where that's going to lead you. Um, this was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. Um, it is the second round in um, second series of this podcast. We kicked it off last year. Um, so far there've been interviews with the likes of Ben Peake, Sasha Coles, Gemma Smith, Lynn Dang, a bunch of others. They're all really incredible people and I really reckon if you have enjoyed this conversation with Jess, you should dig back in and hear about some of those other people and let me know what you think i'm on all the you know various social channels linkedin twitter instagram um just search up matt levinson and let me know i'd love to hear what you think be back next time i might have a story for you